Coming to you live and in living color from the bunker in Conway, South Carolina. I'm George Kite, and this is Violence and Jesus, where we talk about the Warrior Society and their walk with Christ. I want to dive deep with dangerous men and their walks with the Lord, how they got there, and what it takes to change. Come with us. Let's do it. Good morning. We're back at it here in the bunker for violence and Jesus. And I'm your host, George Kipe. Thanks for joining us today. We got Scott Puckett. Uh, Scott Puckett is a former Marine, a former law enforcement officer, SWAT team member, counter-narcotics and former private security contractor slash executive close protection specialist. His uh, teaching experience includes physical fitness, combatives, self-defense, tactics, and active shooter response, emergency evasive driving, and firearms. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Puckett. Scott, man, thanks for being here today. I really appreciate you. Hey, man. Good morning. It's good to see you. That's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. It's uh, it's an honor, and it's uh, it's it's really an awesome topic, and I'm I'm stoked to be with you talking about it today, man. Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, So, uh, how I met Scott Puckett is weird, very weird. So, a long time ago, I was a law enforcement officer for a little while. I was really horrible at the job. There's better men that do it. But uh, he was actually my uh, driving instructor. So here in South Carolina, uh, when you are working for a law enforcement agency and you decide you want to be a firearms instructor or a driving instructor or some other type of instructor, they make you go down to the academy and uh, idiots like me get in the car with you or get on the firing line with you. You watch us make a million mistakes. And uh, you sat in the side of a 1994 Crown Vic and watched me... uh, Hall tail around a racetrack in South Carolina, and I'll be honest with you, man. Uh, I was scared to death because I I, be, I ain't never drove a car like that before. Uh, <laughs> and then when I got in a, got in a car with you, I don't know if you remember, but you were just like, "Hey, man, <laughs> it's gonna be all right, dude. Just 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 do what you were showed to do, and you got this." And I was like, "All right." And uh, I ended up passing first time go. You drove the wheels off, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> you were natural. Sure, sure. You- you don't give yourself enough credit, man. It's good that, times, man. The driving is my favorite part, too. Oh, yeah. That is pretty fun, actually. That is pretty fun. So let's go back in time, a long, long time ago, uh, before Mr. Puckett had any fur on his lip. Uh, and you joined the Marine Corps. What year did you join the Marine Corps? 1991. 1991. Yeah, man. Wow. Um, where was your first duty station? Yeah, Camp Lejeune. Yeah. That's nice. right. And I got injured. Got injured there and uh, was medically discharged. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So, what was your MOS? Nice. It was an infantry, 0311. My man. You made it. Yeah. That you sucked. Know? It was. It was terrible. It was, uh, but it was just, you know, it was just one of those things where, man, I just wasn't meant to be. You know, my knees were jacked. I hear you. My knees were jacked going into it, but I wanted to be a Marine and I accomplished that at least as much as I could. And, yeah. Uh, and then turned the page to the next chapter. Man. Uh, I have the same similar stories, man. Similar stories where uh, we as dudes we set out to do something, uh, especially A type personality guys, and uh, the, it's the, it's not the Lord's will. Uh, and as a man, oh, golly, that sucks. It grinds on you. That it sucks, does. Man, it, it, I, I held a lot of uh, regret, you know, for yeah. a long time, yeah. and that I couldn't do what I wanted to do. Yeah. Because growing up, man, I, my my heroes were Marines. Like yeah. I, I grew up down the road from a World War II veteran, Marine. You yeah. Know? Fought cool. in Ujima, 
just a tough dude. He boxed. I learned how to box from him. He had five sons. I, you know, I, I fought them in the yard. And, <laughs> you know, we just grew up fighting in, in the yard and, and being little, you know, little, little uh, rough neck little kids, man. And, yeah. and it was fun. And, and then got in trouble as a young boy. And uh, oddly, and I'd say, I guess happenstance was it was it was meant to be. It was he was a Marine, he was an old recon Marine, Vietnam vet, recon Marine. And I just, it was just all the men that were kind of like those guiding lights along the way were, were men like that, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, it was just what it was meant to be, you know, it was the, the path that I was meant to take. So I want you to know uh, Camp Geiger has not changed. It's still a crap hole. Uh, yeah. I went through 10 years after you. Uh, but it was it was a crap hole. There's nothing changed. Yeah. So you by know, design, you didn't miss anything. Yeah, by, <laughs> by, by design. It's it's funny, man. By design. I love. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what branch of the military you're in. It just seems like uh, everywhere we put a base, it's always the same crap. It's oh, tattoo yeah. parlors, barber shops, pizza shops, and bars. Yeah, yeah it's it's horrible. I would yeah. never. <laughs> they don't. I mean, it's like uh, you know Jackson Jackson Hole. You know. Vietnam, Vietnam, Vietnam yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, they yeah. got all these, you know, these, uh, these names, funny names, you know, that the, the, the Lance Corporal Criminal Network comes up with, you know, Lance yeah. Criminals come up with. Yeah. So, uh, so you get medically discharged uh, from the Marine Corps. Uh, you're hurting. Yeah. Um, what What's your next step? What do you do after that? Well, it was. You know, just trying to figure out what my next, what the, what was meant to be. I saw, I ventured around a little bit, did construction, yeah. moved down to Florida, was in Columbia for a little while. I actually filmed a movie in Columbia called Renaissance Man. Okay. While I was out in 1992, late 1992. Okay. And uh, was uh, with Danny DeVito and Gregory Hines. And it sounds familiar. Mark Wahlberg. It was Mark Wahlberg's first movie. It was actually really a neat experience and it made me realize what I didn't want to do. <laughs> speak, you know, be, go to Hollywood, but yeah. it, it was a really fascinating experience, to, to say the least. It was um, a lot of a lot of learning, right? Right. From, from there, I ended up going down to Florida, did construction for a while with my buddy Trent, okay, and um, and worked on the Brevard County Zoo in Brevard County, outside of Melbourne, Florida. Okay, but, yeah, because my wow. well, his parents were like parents to me, so we followed them down there. They were going down there to kind of retire, yeah. and um, <clears throat> they. Uh, and and yet, this this is another part of the story where it was meant to be because Trent's mom, Beverly Carpenter, was her name. Okay. And her and his dad, you know, um, they they were, especially Beverly. She was like a mother to me, right? But she was also like a mentor in the way that she would sit us down. And here we are, eighteen, nineteen year old kids, twenty year old kids, and and he, she would mentor to us and read the Bible and make us do Bible study with her. Wow. Because we were staying with them for a little while, and she would cook. Yeah. We would have to wash dishes, and you know, it's like we had responsibilities. And, right. But she would, she would take the time to teach, and lead us in the hmm. in the Bible, and and it was a big part of my life. And then later on, ended up in, a, in another part of my chapter of my life when I went up to Iraq and Afghanistan working for Blackwater. I knew that she was praying for me, and I knew that that yeah. God was going to listen to her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because she had that power, man. Like she was such a. Uh, driving force in my life as a Christian, you know, and I was still journeying, you know, I was still trying to find that. But, but while I was down there, it was a big, it was a big, it was a learning experience for me. I honestly believe that like mothers have a hotline straight to God's ear. There's no doubt, man. Yeah. There's no doubt. I know she did. She's yeah. an angel on earth. Yeah. My mom, I get, I, I, same dude. I could feel my mom praying for me when I was yeah. in Iraq. Like a hundred percent. Like I knew like she had me. So, uh, so you're down there with her. Um, 
you know, she's she's kind of getting your toes, uh, you know, wet or trying to at that formidable age, kind of put starting some discipleship. And at what age do you start getting into law enforcement? So is that before Blackwater? It was it was before okay. and after. But okay. uh, so when I finished up, I made the decision. This it was like I prayed about it, man. I was you know, and I was still, man, I was still drinking, and we're still doing, yeah, living life there, you know, even though. You know, I understand and I know the the way, right? But it's like I'll, I'm, and I've been doing this for a long time. It's like I'm Jonas, right? Running from Nineveh, yeah. You know what I mean? And I feel that. And I and and a friend of mine actually, she's in she's in uh, uh, she's in Africa right now as a missionary. Her and her husband, wow. And she actually brought that up to me because hmm. I was teaching her firearms and self defense, and I'm working with her before she went over because she had a lot of anxiety, a lot of hesitation, but she knew that God was was pushing her and driving her and leading her to go. Yeah. But she said, I have to prepare. Right. And so she told me that she told me that I'm like Jonah running from Nineveh. And it's true, man. Yeah. When I, when I reflected on it and sat back and, and thought about it, it was yeah. true. But yeah. so I came home back to Myrtle beach and uh, the day I'm pulling on, I lived on 44th Avenue North and little river road, right, right down around 811 44th yeah. where I grew up. And I'm, and I'm taking a, a right turn off, our left turn off of uh, Little River Road on the 44th Avenue North. Okay. And uh, Tommy Timberlake, he was a, at the time, he was a sergeant. He was a, no, he was a lieutenant at Myrtle Beach Police Department. He sees me, I roll down the window, and I'm rolling down the window, by the way. Yeah. You know, doing the old prank, <laughs> right? Yeah. Old Mazda truck. Yeah, and uh, kids that. So yeah, oh, yeah, I love that, it, yeah. man. I have one of my, my, my truck's my old manual now. So yeah. so I roll down the window, and he, and he stops me. He goes, Myrtle Beach, we're hiring for the auxiliary program right now. Put your application in. It was like. Oh, I want to say it was like February. Just I randomly? Well, I just happened to see him. Huh. He's he's I'm it's early in the morning because I left at like three or four from Florida. Yeah. It was real early in the morning. I always drive early in the morning. So I'm driving and, I, and he's going to work. Okay. I'm coming in. Yeah. Right? And it might have been earlier, but it, anyway, it was perfect timing. He was right there at the intersection. And he saw me and he recognized me right away. And he's like, Hey, we're hiring. So I put my application in, I get hired in April. April the fourth, right? Yeah. No, April the first. It was what, April Fool's Day. What year? 1994. Okay. Yep, 1994. So I go in, and I get hired on as auxiliary officer at Myrtle Beach. And that summer, I was on beach patrol. Like, they came in the room. They go, all right, who's who can swim? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I mean, he, and I've always been like a fish man growing up here. And then even in the boot, in boot camp, I qualified the, all the all the high scores on swimming and all that. Right. Right. And so. Um, they were like, all right, and I had lifeguard experience. I was a lifeguard one time. They were like, all right, okay. you, you was like, yeah, there was some of my buddies that grew up here. It was all local Myrtle Beach boys that, yeah. that put us on beach patrol. Hmm. And um, another buddy of mine, Kurt, who's now an MD, he's a doctor. He wow. got smart and said, I'm out. Yeah. He used yeah. his brain. So, and that was it, man. I was on auxiliary that summer, and then I ended up getting hired on full time that winter. Wow. Okay. How was uh how was working for Myrtle Beach back then uh you know in comparison to it is now how it is now? So based on what I know, um, not much has changed right. except they don't do the auxiliary program anymore. Okay, and I hear they're short. Honestly. I remember they used to. I thought it was wasn't that the kids who uh, had to wear the all khakis and would like basically that's, do like uh, so based on the way the law changed over the years. I think that's why they got real rid of auxiliary. I think, okay. but you have you had like a year to go to the academy, right, right, right. But then there's all the liability. True, very. So true. I think that's another reason why they stopped doing it. Yeah, um, I don't know, but uh, it was a good program to farm people and and vet people. I think. 
Yeah. But now things have changed so much. I, I, don't, I don't really know what their thought process is. But so uh, how it's changed. Yeah. Okay. So back then it was a small department. It was like 130, I think. If right. That, maybe not even that. Yeah. 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 Because Myrtle Beach was smaller back yeah, then. Real yeah. Real small. And it was uh, it was like a fran- family. Everybody knew each other. Hmm. And uh, and there was a lot of old timers there that were there that, that started in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. So it was a lot to learn from them. Man. Yeah. Like I, I, I gained a lot of knowledge. Yeah. On yeah. how to be, you know, a better for, cop. For a lot of people who don't know, I mean, law enforcement is definitely one of those jobs where it's, uh, it's drinking from a fire hose. And it's not like uh, you don't have you don't have a honeymoon phase. You can't. You don't have time. No. Like you, uh, when I graduated from the academy, I graduated on New Year's Day. Yeah, that night, I was on shift. No joke. That night. So I got home. I graduated 10 o'clock in the morning. I <laughs> drove home. I was home by like lunchtime. I remember taking a nap or something. And then my FTO at the time gives me a call and he's like, hey, man, you got to come in at 96. And that's what I did. I came in at uh, 1800 that night and started my first shift. Like you're, like, you're like, okay, I'll be Lost there. in the sauce. Had no right. clue. Because it's not just, a, it's not just a, the... You know, being a cop, people think, oh, look, there's someone doing something bad. Let me go grab them. No. Well, there's so much other crap to it. It's customer service. You're trying to solve people's problems. You're trying to figure out, well, did this guy actually do something wrong? And then on top of that, it's a bunch of stinking paperwork, right? Yeah. And if you screw it up, your sergeant is like an eighth grade English teacher, just marks it up and sends it back to you. And he's like, hey, dummy, you know, half this crap's messed up. Fix yep. it. This is messed up. That's messed up. And then to add insult to injury... If it ever goes to trial, you got to go to court too. You're scrutinized on it. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you do something stupid, like you said, yeah. someone's going to pull you aside. Like, man, you can't say that. You, right. What is this? Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. so uh, how long did you work for uh, Myrtle Beach uh, before you left there? I was there almost about three years. Okay. And I don't, I, by then I'd gotten married. I was 25 years old. Right. I'd been there and, and I realized that what life was going to be like working there. Right. Just soul draining, you know, just, just that life source, yeah. just draining out of you, you know, mm-hmm. cause of, you never had any time in the summertime. Back then we'd work three months without a day off. Sometimes mm. we would, you would go weeks and weeks and weeks without a day off. Dang. 12 hour shifts. I mean, it, there wasn't that many of us and it was just busy. Mm-hmm. The boulevard yeah. was nonstop. It was always something. Yeah. And it was just a, it was a very, uh, you know, and, and you got to think too, things were changing then. That was right, right after Rodney King. Right, right. So the way we policed was way different. We still didn't have body cameras, and it hadn't quite changed the way policing was done in the sense that you were more scrutinized because I put my hands on a lot of people. Right. And I'll say right now, throughout my career, you know, it was right at 20 years that I did, I, I put my hands on a lot of people. I've heard a lot of people in the, in the arrest, right, like right, making right. the arrest, not, right. not abuse. And I never got a use of force complaint, nor was I ever sued right. for that. Now, right. my mouth got me in a lot of trouble, a lot of yeah, trouble, yeah. right? Yeah. And some of the things I would do, right, driving fast, things like that. Explain uh, to the audience use of force and uh, well, in, in specifically for law enforcement, like what a use of force report is. Right. Explain so, that for me. So basically use of force is, is just a documentation of why you use the force necessary. Mm-hmm. to make the arrest. And the way it works is called a one plus one type theory. And there and people have misnomers about how use of force continuum works. It's not a ladder that you climb. Mm-hmm. It's a if this, then that mm-hmm. type 
you know, roadmap, if you will. Mm -hmm. You may jump from hands-on to deadly force. You may right. jump, you may be trying to control somebody, and the next thing you know, you're having to shoot them. So, like, for example, um, you know, you came to arrest me, and I start, you know, start open hand or closed fist trying to punch you or something like that. You go one step up, and you use a taser or back then probably a, a billy jack. Well, we uh, we had batons, aspiton, yeah, aspiton? we had batons or pepper okay. spray back then, or pepper spray. Yeah. So when they when they're watching videos of a dude who's resistant and trying to assault the police officer, and the police officer pulls out an aspiton and starts striking him in the legs and stuff like that, uh, you would have to write a report like, "Hey, the reason why I did that was because right. uh, you know he, he was resi actively resisting me. Uh, you know, officer safety, blah right. blah." So yeah, so I just wanted the audience kind of know about that because a lot of stuff like that is you know it's. Uh, not, it's not really trade secret, but it's just one of those things that people don't talk about, you right. know, uh, often, especially when you're a law enforcement officer. It's such a regular thing. Sure. And not people, so much anymore, it seems. No, no, because well, you can get in trouble now. And and people need to understand, too, that that physical force, right, ultimately violence is golden. Yeah. In the sense that we use, vi we use violence as a last resort to mm -hmm. stop someone from continuing. Right. We don't want to have to kill someone, right? But right. the violence, like it, it, and what I found is the faster, right, or sooner rather than faster, meaning that if you put hands on someone and you know they're going to fight and all the indicators are there, you got to pay attention to human nature. Right. 80% of communication is body language, right? 100%. So if you pay attention to all that, then you could quickly put your hands on someone and end it without them getting hurt. And that's mm -hmm. the thing that people forget. And you see all these twisted, grabby, pulley, grabbing the arms and all that right. stuff. And all people are doing is pulling out of that and punching cops in the face. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's the thing, you, the, like this whole, like you can't rear naked choke someone or whatever, mm -hmm. you can't grab them yeah. around the neck. Baloney, if you know what you're doing and you train it properly, you, yeah. could, you could restrain someone quickly, and I've done it many, many, many times. And even against policy, I'll, I'll admit it now, I think the statute of limitations, I'm sure it's not really a law, it's not a crime, right? No, so, yeah. But I've done it in a rear naked choke and a carotid artery choke to stop someone from continuing to fight, especially back in the nineties though, bro. Opponent. Yeah. Right? Back in the nineties, late nineties, early two thousands, uh, you know, I was even told that uh that was just old school policing. It was kind of what you did. Right. I mean if you try to jack you try to fight a cop, uh, they're going to they're going to handle you. Right. And and they should. And the thing is is that the the more that someone knows prior to their next interaction with a right. cop, that they, they will get their rear end handed to them. Uh -huh. And the violence will be used on them, right? Right. If they, if they learn that early, they don't keep them from dying. You understand, man? Yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of these, a lot of the cops nowadays, like they don't, they don't exact force like it needs to be. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the next exchange or interaction, out of fear, exactly. Mm -hmm. And the next interaction that they have with a cop could be deadly for that cop. Could be, yeah. Because hey, there's weight classes in fighting for a reason. True. Very true. So, uh, so you you worked there for three years. You leave. Went on to the county police. Moved on to yep. Horry County Police Department. Yep. Yeah, I worked there for about two years. And two I years. Just, again, I'm slowly working my way inland. <laughs> Work, working my way west. I'm, so uh, what's uh, were you, Central? Were you South Precinct? Uh, I was, County? Uh, back then it was Sector 2, which was Myrtle Beach, okay. all the way up to the, in the North Myrtle Beach. It stopped right at the North Myrtle Beach line was where like where it okay. goes into Cherry Grove back then. And then um and then I worked sector one, which is Little River. Did you get any good up. training when you switched over to Ori County? Yeah, because I went on the SWAT team there. Okay. And I was on the SWAT team with all the old the old core man. Bunch yeah. of bunch of good, solid dudes. We had no equipment. 
was about to say, was that back in the MP5 days? The MP5s, we had to check them out. If we had a SWAT call out, we had yeah. to check them out. At, you had to drive at, all the way back to the all, main precinct. Somebody had to go to the at that main, what is it? We call it ML Brown building ML here, Brown, but, but it's, yeah. what is it, 2560 North Main yeah, Street yeah, or something like that? It's so for people who are listening, uh, where we are in Conway, South Carolina right now, it's probably – 10 miles, 10, 12 miles miles, until you get there. So Mm -hmm. imagine having to drive 10, 12 miles, haul butt, run in lights and sirens, run in, let someone know like, Hey bro, I got to check out. You got to meet the chief. Like it was like (laughs) back then it was, it was, um, it was, uh, uh, Johnny Morgan. Johnny Morgan was like the chief. He was like the major back then. So, so, uh, what explain, try to, try to describe the training that was going on back then in SWAT time. Cause you know, me being in the you know the military and the tactical world, I could see uh, where the Cold World War type tactics, where the guys they learned a lot of stuff, but they never got to actually use it. That practical exercise didn't exist. So, did you get a bunch of that uh, like Cold War style, non practical exercise type training? And then, you know, what did you do with it after that? So then, mainly our training. Was was CQB all day. Yeah. Every time we got together, I can barely remember a time we did anything different. Right. It was always CQB with the and and it was the old you know button hook cross all that. It was using like pistols or pistols MP5s? and MP5s. Okay. Yeah. But but I was still a new guy. Right. We have shotguns. Shotguns. Too, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I was still you know the new guy trying to learn and and get you know get my feet wet and get experience. So we a lot of the old tactics we trained at the old Myrtle Beach Air Force Base now it's Market Commons yeah 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 and it was the barracks back then we trained mm-hmm. in and my first experience with a flashbang was in the was in the the doggone tiled it was a room about maybe a little bit bigger than this yeah and it was the the latrine or or, or head <laughs> yeah yeah right yeah. the showers and everything else yeah. and it was all tile so my first no ear pro <laughs> that was like the initiation they they threw a bang in there. And you were on it, like you. They didn't. You had no clue that it was about to happen. It was like boom, you know. Immediately, your ears are gone, and you're like, and they wanted to see how you're going to react. So you keep moving, right? Like yeah. that was the thing. They wanted to see if you were going to keep moving. Nice. It was a pause for a second, and then it was yeah. like, you know, it was that, yeah. it was that flinch. Oh, and then you drive on through it. Okay. But that was that, and then and then. Um, Did you get any dicey? Uh, get into any dicey situations of SWAT back then? Yeah, we had a few call outs, man, and yeah. drug raids that we would do. Drug we, raids. Yeah, dr- a lot of drug raids back then. We were doing them out of the back of like U-Haul trucks and stuff. What? Oh yeah, dude. Yeah. We would. That's how we got around. We didn't have a SWAT truck. Yeah. You know, yeah. we had we dude. We had very little equipment. We had the old mesh, the old mesh zip up. Yeah, 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 vest yeah, 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 yeah. That would go over our soft body armor. No, no plates. No plates. All. No plates, dude. No plates. Dang. Drop leg, the old drop leg canvas, yeah, like, yeah. you know, suicide holsters that would you go and fall out. Just of. fall out of them. Yeah. And then yeah. we, I think we ended up getting some Kydex like toward the end, but I don't remember. I want to say it was always that, that old stuff. So, yeah. But the vest for sure. And then, you know, training, there was no training. It was no like formal training. It was just everything in house, right? Everything right, was like right. what I knew, where I trained, where I went, you know, there was nothing then prior to it was just the war on drugs. Right. So right. a lot of the influence was coming from, from that, and then of course the Cold War war stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is funny because like even you know I went to boot camp, oh one, oh two, went to infantry school, oh one, oh two, and uh, one of the things they taught us, uh, and to this day I don't even know if it's a real tactic or not, but like they told us if you heard helicopters or airplanes coming, you lay down in a line, feet to head in a line, and point your gun up at the sky. Like we practiced that, 
They're like, hey, if a fast mover's coming or a helicopter's coming, do that and try to shoot the helicopter. I don't know if they were screwing with us. I mean, I'll try to Google it and see if it was one of those, you know, things that they used to teach back in Vietnam. But it was so funny because I was like, there's no way this is a real thing. But then you get, you know, into actually like operating, you know, into an actual tactical environment. And you're like, why would they even waste time teaching us that? Uh, so something's better than nothing, I guess. Something's better than nothing, I guess. Uh, trust me, the Iraqis didn't have helicopters, nor did they have airplanes. But uh, so when I've always told people, man, like when I met a lot of the SWAT guys, I always thought like how different it was because uh, I always thought it was worse actually because you guys would operate sometimes two, three, four times a week. Like you did a mission, an op, a real world mission. Three, four times a week. Bro, when I think back to being deployed in Iraq, like, uh, I mean, yeah, we'd go out, but I mean, we'd go for walks as a patrol. I mean, you might see something, you might not see something, but we didn't always kick in doors knowing that the potential to be in shots right there. And that's one of the things I realized when, you know, I got into law enforcement was like, bro, this is a little more sketchier than I thought. Yep. It's you every know? day. I mean, especially, and I don't even think about this like an idiot, like, Bro, this is South Carolina. The number of trailers that are meth labs. Oh yeah. Shoot a shoot a five five six through a trailer. I mean, what's it going? It's going to go almost one into the other through those panel boards. If it doesn't hit a, you know, a good steel uh, uh, a, a steel stud or or a pipe or something, five five six will cut through a trailer. The thin side to the back side, like a hot knife through butter. There's nothing in between that. Uh, and not to mention the fact that if it hits something, it causes a spark. That too. That was the reason that I got off the next SWAT team I was on because they started this hazmat training. Okay. Where they wanted us to go into meth labs. Okay. With with ABC suits on, where the the you know the fully contained yeah yeah respirator bagged up plastic right. suits and all that yeah with guns and I'm like you don't do that <laughs> you guys need to wake up yeah yeah and stop trying to reinvent the wheel and yeah. and and you know, create this this cool guy tactical drug uh, lab yeah. environment thing. And I was like, and that's when I knew I was like, all right, this is it's time to move on. So so you went from Horry County PD here in South Carolina and then you transitioned to Richland County Sheriff's Richland Department. County, yep. which is in the center of the center of the state, close yep. to our capital, yep. Columbia. Right. So you were with the Sheriff Department? So I was with the Sheriff's Department there. Okay. Uh, Leon Lott had just been elected sheriff and it was the Wild West. Yeah. So one of my boys down here was like, hey man, because for me, then my mind was as I was always seeking that you know I wanted to get my kids away from Myrtle Beach then because I, I saw what was going on right and right. I didn't want them growing up like I did because I was a bad kid man I got in a lot of trouble when I was a yeah. boy right yeah. so but I, I I wanted to get them in a more stable like normal if you will schedule wise not a tourist area town I got you. so and then this came up and my boy Mike Grazioso was working up there and uh, he. He's like, hey, man, this place is the Wild West. You can come up here and police because it's a lot of crime and it needs to be handled. And, and so come on up here and let's work. So I got up there and went to work. And it was, man, it was – and it still is. It's a dangerous area. Richland County? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It is a different place. It's a bigger city, you know. And it's right outside of Fort Jackson. And it's right outside it of Fort Jackson. It actually encompasses Fort Jackson. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that, you know. Uh, well, I think they do, especially if you're a veteran. If you if you've been in the Marine Corps, or the Army, something about something about those towns, man. It just it just it it, it attracts it attracts dirtbags. Yeah. I don't understand. Like Fort Hood is like everyone talks about how horrible. I've never been, but people talk about how horrible that place with the gangbangers and stuff. But 
All right, so you go down to Richland. Uh, what kind of training did you get down there? Did you jump on the SWAT team yeah. down there? Or? So things really for my career took off then. Man. Okay, I, I I experienced a whole another level of forward leaning. You know, because the sheriff's all about training, it's all about education. I got you. He was always about pushing the envelope. Like I, that's where I learned where what what a sheriff is supposed to be. Right. Meaning that it, you're a servant of the people. One hundred percent. You are one hundred percent. Where I wasn't learning learning that here, uh-huh. but I was taught that. And one of the things, one of the lessons I'll never forget too is um, Hubert Harrell was a chief deputy then. He ran the academy for a while. He's retired. He was a retired Navy man. He was a good man. And one of the things he taught me, and I, it, I'll never forget this in orientation. He goes, "You don't write old people tickets, and you don't write teenagers tickets. Old people will eat dog food before they not pay that ticket. Right. And teenagers, mom and dad working hard." Blue collar, middle class folks are going to pay that ticket, right? Not the kid. So you had to find a way, and all it took was a warning for old folks. Man, they right. It's a different generation. Mm-hmm. Just slow down. You know, be careful. You know, whatever, whatever the case may be, and you deal with it. You deal with it respect, respectfully. But the kids, man, I would make them like turn papers on speeding, whatever. I would call yeah. their parents. Yeah, you know what I mean. So I'll I'll give you a comparison. Flashback to rookie George Kite working for the county. Uh, over here on 544 in the South Precinct, uh, kid driving a Carolina squatted truck, speeding, right? I pull him over, smell a little bit of weed in the car. I get him out. And some of my mentors told me the same thing you're saying right now. And so I get him out of the car, and I said, this is what's going to happen. I can write you a simple possession ticket and impound your truck, or we can call your dad. Yep. And so I called his dad. And calling his dad was way more detrimental than writing him a $600 ticket for him. It taught him more. If I would have wrote him that ticket, he wouldn't be able to join the military. Right. He wouldn't have been able to go to college. But I got a, uh, a write-up for that. Yeah. Because for doing the right thing. For, do, for what I felt was doing the right thing. You but did. Because I destroyed the weed on the side. And in case you guys are listening out there, like your supervisor, at a time I had a supervisor that was just known to be – uh, Nazi is the wrong term, but uh, anal. anal being anal, micromanager, micromanager kind of guy. And you know, Status as an officer, you do have officer discretion, and I use that officer discretion, I thought, in a good way. And of course, I got a lot of buddies who would, who agreed with me at the time, but supervisor wasn't too cool with it, uh, and gave me a you know a non formal write up for it because he wanted the guy to get a ticket or he wanted him to go to jail. So that was the difference, and it was because. During the time, honestly, the local police department here was going through some things with uh, oh, yeah. some of the big name they were uh, worried. other stuff that was going on. I don't know if I could talk about it because I don't know if I don't want to make it a bad name. I don't want anybody to hate me, but it's in the past. Uh, there was some stuff. We had a missing young lady and things that happened that had come up with the, the precinct. We had a new chief, the old chief had been let go. And so we were under the microscope, yeah. right? We had been sued to death, and then people were sue happy because this oh, is yeah. right after Ferguson. Deep pockets, man. So I'm after Ferguson. You were after Rodney King. Mm-hmm. I'm during and after Ferguson. Uh, BLM's a brand new thing. Body cameras are a brand new thing. And uh, so, I mean, that's just the difference between yeah. your generation and my generation was, you know, I tried to do the same thing. I got to write up. Well, see, you got to think, man. Law enforcement is a, is, a, is a microcosm of the major society, right? So we're a representation of where we came from, like our parents, our families, our, our neighbors, you know, our extended family, everything, all that, our community that we come from. So what you learned, and especially from those older guys, is called discretion. Right. 
and right. you and you did the right thing, I think. And you I, I believe, agree. Right? I agree. Yeah. There's a difference between rules, right, and being morally right mm-hmm. and wrong. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and morally, you did the right thing. You helped this kid, right? But he still got punished. His mm-hmm. dad, his dad punished him. Right. And probably, and like you said, probably a better punishment than he would ever receive through the system. Because who's going to pay that six hundred dollar ticket? You think he was going to pay it? No, he couldn't. Probably. His dad was his going dad to, was to pay, pay it. it. Yeah. Simple possession back then was I think six eighty five or right. something like that. Yeah. And that that's a tough, like you said, and that, that could destroy his future. It could. Now it's not your fault. It's not. It's a decision he made. True. And you can think of it that way, but then where where's the human factor? Right. Because you're not the judge and the jury. You can surely just grind him up, let somebody else spit him out. True. But the thing is, is that. Ultimately, it's it's being a law enforcement officer should be about helping the community. True. Right. And they, they used to give us that discretion. Yeah. Right. And before Big Brother started watching, everybody started scrutinizing Monday morning quarterback, everything. Now you see on Instagram, you know, there's all this analyst TikTok, Facebook. Yeah, all these videos that come out of law yeah. enforcement interactions and that are analyzed and scrutinized. And um, and it's easy to do after the fact as a Monday morning quarterback. Mm-hmm. Should have done this, should have done that, I'd have done this, I'd have done this, I'd have done that, whatever. Truth of the matter is, is that ultimately we should, and this is a lot of the reason that Ferguson effect is a lot of the reason why we are in this predicament now. Mm-hmm. And I say we as in law enforcement, the, the law enforcement community is in that predicament now right. because they're not allowing young people to get punched in the face before they go out on the streets. And listen, that's a controversial stand, but I believe the same thing. And a lot of guys in our world, you know, we talk about, you know, this podcast is for the Warrior Society. So 90% of the guys who are listening to this and gals who are listening to this have been punched in the face. That's right. You know, they've dealt with that kind of thing. Right. Um, it doesn't change who we are. No, it doesn't change we who we are. We still love Jesus. I still love Jesus. We're just Jesus. not perfect. I remember being in a police academy and I'm looking at this dude, and this guy looked like he could have been 115 pounds soaking wet. And, I, of course, I'm a combat veteran before I became a cop. You know, I was a little bit older. I had been married and divorced. Got before salt. I, yeah, you know, and then I'm looking at this kid who's here in South Carolina. You could be 21 and be a law enforcement officer, yeah. uh, which I know some of my buddies uh, up in New York and out in California, some of my veteran buddies who are listening. I know you guys, you're probably freaking out about that because 21 years old and you only get uh, <laughs> 10 weeks of training or something. And it's but, gotten worse. So, but what I, uh, I remember looking at this guy and I'm like, hey, man. He's like, you ever been in a fist fight, dude? And he's like, no, why? And I'm like, no, why? Are you why, why would you ask such a question? Are you serious? Like, yeah, man, I've never been. No, I was like, you've never been punched in the face. You haven't done any right. Dude, I tried to convince that dude so bad. I was like, dude, let me punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> let me hit you, bro. Because listen, you're going to be on some back alleyway with a crack addict, and he's going to mollywop you in the dome one good time. That's a good one. And then potentially what? Take a gun? You know? And there you go. There you go. And there shoot you have you. it. And that's, you know, that's shoot someone the, else. The gun is always there. It's always there. And that's why. I, and I, when I teach, I teach a lot of civilians now. I teach private. I teach small groups. All that stuff. And when I tell them, I'm like, you can don't 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 let that gun make you feel invincible because that gun can be taken away from you. And I've done it. Yeah, I've taken guns away from people. Yeah, before. it belongs to both y'all. In a confrontation, right. it belongs to both y'all until someone takes the high ground. You know, until it's out of that holster and someone's dominated. Yeah. Uh, or a, someone's shot. It's a shot. point of domination, a mental and emotional and physical point of domination. Yeah. Because you can you can be fighting with somebody try to, and pull that gun out right in the middle of the fight. Yeah. And they can grab it just as quickly as you can. Take it from you. So uh, let's let's pause on that for a little bit. And let's talk about, uh, you know, where your walk with Christ was during uh, this high-speed time. You're kicking in doors. You're, you're policing the community. Uh, you're at a, your second 
third uh, uh, PD. Uh, I was on the gypsy. Become a gypsy. <laughs> you were Roman. I was Roman. So, uh, was, yeah, Ronan. There you go. So, what was your what what? How was your walk with Christ? Did you put it on? Was you put on the back burner? What's what's going yeah, on? Yeah, man. I mean, like I said, man. I, I've I've I felt like Jonah right? yeah. running from Nineveh for a long time, and yeah. and um, and you know believed always believed and was saved i was baptized you know at a young age and and uh and during that time i prayed we went to church but it was still that lukewarm you know Mm -hmm. mindset yeah and and i know god had a plan for me and i know that there's no way i survived all the things that i've encountered in the in close encounters with with violence i have a theory and my theory is with guys like us is that it's 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 either one or the other i feel like it's Either one, we looked at Christianity as dorky because of the churches we were raised in and stuff like that, and we were kind of like, ah, you know, that's lame. I don't want to milk that's, toast. That's, that's lame, yeah. yeah. Or we just took it for granted and we thought it was always there. Yeah, like we didn't have to have a relationship with Christ. Like it was just right. It's just there. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have to do anything to be discipled or to to grow that relationship. Is that something you believe? Do you think it's like one of those two things? Or yeah, I mean, it was just. It was one of those things where you're. It's, it's that cognitive dissonance, right? Where yeah. you just you just know it's there, but you you know you want to you just want to kind of roll move on and, mm-hmm. and take it for granted <clears throat> without having to to dive into that relationship. And that's ultimately what God wants. He wants us to have a relationship with Him. True. And so that's the thing we take for granted, right? Because we have other things on our mind, and right. it's all about me, me, me. It's I, I, I. And we're ultimately, you know, we come out of the womb like that, man. Yeah. It's about, it, we're, we're inherently evil, and that's that's just the way we are. We have to learn to be good. Yeah, and the lifestyle gravitates towards that, you know, the drinking, uh, you know, especially drinking. I know drinking coping. is prevalent. And, yeah, uh, for coping, and, coping. And, yeah. and just numbing. Uh, I've always felt really bad about this because, like, I think about, like, uh, you know, being a combat veteran, of course, I'm I'm no stranger to the VA, right? I'm no stranger to post-traumatic stress. And I always thought, I was like, man, you know, you can join the military. You can be in the military for a year, two years, go to combat, come home, and get compensated financially for post-traumatic stress. And when I became a law enforcement officer, I was like just dumbfounded that there's not a plan. There's no system. And then I realized... I seen more, and, and I know a lot of people are going to hate on me, but this is the this is a fact. I got three combat tours to Iraq. Some of it was in some of the dirtiest fighting in Fallujah in 04. And I seen more dead people as a county cop yep. in a month than I did in a whole deployment. And I'm not talking about mutilated. They're not always mutilated or something like that. But you're talking about, you know, we've got a lot Just of retirees. Corpses. Yeah, corpses. I mean, we got a lot of retirees in this county. Yep. You got car accidents. You got gunshot victims. You got just old people who died. And... All I could think about was all my bros who had never served in the military. They can't claim VA. And, like, how are you self-medicating? It's like, oh, okay, there it yeah, is. Oh, yeah. There it is. Just get hammered drunk. You come off work, you know, go and get drunk and try to self-medicate because there isn't. And I don't understand why our state or any state, I don't know how other states is, but I know specifically South Carolina uh, does not have a program to take care of their, their uh, state employees because that's what we are. Uh, your certification, even though you work for a county, you're a state employee or a municipality. And there's no program to be like, hey, man, I know that you served the community and you saw some stuff that might bother you. Because we'll admit to it on a national level, right? But apparently there's <laughs> it, only if you work for the federal government does it, does it actually bother you. But here on the state level or the county level, 
there's no need for you to have any kind of compensation or even help, even help. But I, I think maybe police departments are starting to move towards that direction. They are. They they're late. Yeah. You know, they're forty, fifty years late. <clears throat> but you know, being able to get counsel and stuff, so guys turn to that. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that uh, there's not more guys using drugs. Even though they're cops, right? But using drugs because of the fact that they're having to deal with not just stress of the job, not just your regular stress of the job. You know, you can be a teacher and have stress. That's right. You know that that exists also as a cop. You know, did I come in on time? Right. Did I say someone post to? Did right. I do this paperwork right? Then on top of that, you got to worry about dying. Yeah. There's one. How about that? Yeah. Dying. How about being threatened your job every month? Yeah. Uh, car accidents. People don't see you when you're driving fast or slow. Um, and then having to basically be, you know, you I don't know how much you had it, but, you know, I'm post-Ferguson, so the respect for law enforcement was basically, it was gone. By design. You know? So people would, people would just talk wholesale crap. And I think because of me being a Marine and being hazed to death a couple of times that it kind of, it's one of those things that didn't really bother me, right. like, Say what you want to say. You still sure got to. You still got to go to jail, bro. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> but imagine you know not being able to do that and having to cope. And uh, you know, a lot of guys they don't they don't turn to Christ. You know, uh, they don't want to feel like a punk. Uh, they don't want to feel weak. And uh, when you have a relationship with God, uh, most of the time, all we see is the vulnerable parts. Right. Where it's like, you know, you want me to open up, and cry. I ain't about to cry. Right. I was told not to cry, man. I don't cry. It's like, all right, dude. Right. There's no crying in football. That's cool. You know, you ain't got to cry, bro. I'm just trying to see how your day's going. Right. You know, or well, the difference is too. I think that it's the lack of relation because you, you or I, we go into any any given church any given Sunday, and there's a there's more people in there that don't see the way thing the way we see things. Right. They don't have they don't have the lens for it. They don't have they don't have that that memory bank. Right. And they've never had it. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm not saying that they're less than you know than any man. I'm just simply saying that they just don't. They haven't walked a mile in our shoes. Very true. And because of that, it's hard for us as a cop. And 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 you never know if you're gonna run into somebody you've arrested. Oh. You know. And there's where it comes, and we become antisocial. Uh-huh. And I thought about that, man. And it was one of the best things I've ever done is 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 figure out that as a cop, I need more friends outside of law enforcement than I do in. Yeah, because of institutional inbreeding and the regurgitation and the echo yeah, chamber. Echo chamber, bro. You hundred percent. You just you never get a chance to have anything normal or to to release and let go of all that and put what you know and what you do aside and just mm-hmm. be a normal person. Because mm-hmm. there's nothing normal about seeing the the evil that we see and dealing with the violence we you know every day. We love it. Mm-hmm. We become addicted to it. But we find that we can't relate to normal people. And I say normal, I mean as in the people that aren't, aren't haven't done some type of combat arms or some type of violent yeah. job. And that's why we ended up uh, marrying, in my case, a, a registered nurse. And in your case, another law enforcement officer. I mean, that's kind of like what we do. Well, I mean, because I could come home and I could tell about, I could talk about how I went from a call uh, from a kid who didn't want to go to school, so the parents sure. called us, to a dude who's basically chopped in half from a car accident. Yep. I can go home and tell my wife. We can have a conversation about that. Yep. You know, yep. get my, it off my chest. As for will. me, my wife Misty, she uh, she's still law enforcement. She's a canine handler. And, and before when I met her, I gotta get her in here, man. Yeah, dude, you would. She's awesome, man. Yeah. I'll tell you, uh, and I'll tell you another one too. Is uh, Misty's dad? 
Yeah. So her father, he was one nine. I seen yeah. uh, I seen um, the local uh, television station did a spotlight right on veterans. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I seen that. Yeah. yeah. He's on Veterans Project too. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. He was veterans interviewed. Project. Yeah, yeah. He was interviewed on Veterans Project. He's a friend of mine that I that Walking I connected dead. with. And yeah, one nine. Hey, that's right. Yeah. He's a tough dude, man. And he had a lot of influence on Misty. I believe it. Big time. And so yeah. she's no normal woman. She's tougher than a lot of dudes that I know. Yeah. Like she's her work ethic, she she runs circles around me work wise. Yeah. I mean, she's not only she cannot handle her, but she's a real estate agent. So if yeah. you need a real estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Misty, uh the first time I met her, we had to run the uh the PRT, what uh the county's uh physical fitness thing. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, there's a lot of people who kinda take Dude. that. Once you've been a cop for a while, they kinda take it as a as a joke, like, uh, whatever. But uh I was with a bunch of other jarheads, so we were like, bro, I'm not I'm like, okay. It took right. you how long to do this? Like, bro, I'm trying to do this in right. five minutes. I'm right. trying to kill it. Save some minutes, yeah. And uh she uh bro, I remember her going flying through that and I was like, dang. Yeah. Like I don't even feel like doing it now. She's uh, no joke, man. She's tough. She can run and, and she runs faster than I do. She's <laughs> you know, and she's just she's just got no quit in her. So uh, I look up to her and that that you know that she's she's a, a rock for me. Yeah. Right. And that helps, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so and her upbringing. She's had a you know, she had a rough life in the sense that she lost her mother when she was really young with breast to breast cancer. Okay, and then her father raised her like a boy. He calls her his third son. <laughs> <laughs> and I know, and I'll say this on the record: she's tougher than both her older brothers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, what? man. So, uh, so you're at Richland County, uh, living that life. Uh, how long before you leave there? Oh, man, I was there the for next. a while. And then finally, when things broke out in Afghanistan and then Iraq, I, yeah. I saw my opportunity, you know, to to, to actually deploy. Yeah. Like, because I'd never been able to do it with the right. Marine Corps, right? So I was like, man, this is an opportunity. And I get an opportunity to dig myself out of a financial hole. So who'd you go get a job with? Blackwater. Oh, good old Blackwater. Yeah, man. Dang, man, I wanted so bad to be with Blackwater, man. Dude, uh, dude it was, I was there in the early days, too. Yeah, yeah. So I, I met a couple of awesome. Blackwater dudes back in 03 and 04 over there. Yeah, that's the was, early days, yeah. I was like, dude, man, your job was amazing. The wild, wild west. So uh, so you go to Monadnock, North Carolina. Yeah, Moyoc. Moyoc, that's right, yeah, Moyoc. Yeah. Uh, you go up to Moyoc, North Carolina, and uh, you got accepted by Blackwater. How was the training? It was a vetting process. Yeah. It was three weeks straight, no day off, th- 21 days of vetting. Put your dangle in the dirt. That's it. Do it. Every day. Either you do it or you don't. Okay. Because these guys that were they were actually doing the vetting, the, the cadre there, they'd already been downrange. They were looking at it like, hey, would I want to deploy with you? Would mm-hmm. I want to work alongside of you? Would, They're probably all former special ops. A lot of former Marines, yeah. uh, special operations guys, SEALs. There was, there was a mix. Of course, okay. you know, Eric Prince being a SEAL. He, yeah, the he owner, started the program, Prince, yeah. yeah, and so, but it was awesome, man. It was a, it was a really cool. It was almost, it was like going back and having again a small community, yeah. And the old lodge was there. They had a big black bear in there. It was just a neat little place, little cool. teeny little chow hall, and and uh, it was it was uh, it was Spartan, but it was <laughs> yeah, but it was dude, it was fun, and it was I had a good time, and yeah. I ended up going over to Iraq. What year was this? February 2005 is when I was like okay. end of January, 1st of February, I deployed to Iraq okay. in 2005. Where'd you go in Iraq? Baghdad. First of all, what was your job? So was I was it? just what you call PSS, private mm-hmm. uh, you know, personal security specialist. Right? Okay. So you, know, you were just, in the green zone? Or, or AKA a, a window licker. Window licker. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you were literally facing a window, looking out, covering your sector in the back seat, right? Yeah. These new guys were either in the well, right, in, right, in, right. The, in the you know, in the back of the truck, uh-huh. and uh, or you're looking a window. But one way or the other, you got a window in your face, you got yeah. an AR, and you're you're guarding your sector. Yeah. So there's an M4. And back in 05, man. It was a good time in Iraq. It was a good time. Was was a good time. Yeah. I, I I had the same conversation with Irv uh, when he came in here last week. People don't understand, like, and once again, I don't know if someone's going to get butthurt over this, but I had a blast. I did too. I had a blast. You're hanging out with A-type personalities, yep. your, your fraternity, yeah. right? Imagine you're with your fraternity, or if some of you don't understand that, your freaking bowling league right. or your baseball team <laughs> or your uh, bros you go to the gym with. And then you're like, dude, let's go. Uh, let's go get some guns. <laughs> go go right. fight some terrorists. Right. All right. Let's, let's drive do around it. a bad place. You know, let's protecting get good people from bad people. Yeah. And you, you, you on a dial, right? Yeah. We're 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 operating like ten and a half. Yeah. Tweaking on eleven. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Eleven, eleven. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like, we're there, and all it is is a constant reminder of don't don't screw this up, boys. Yeah. You're making good money. Yeah. You're in a good place. Yeah. Do the right thing, right? So, what was a uh, what was a regular? I know regular is kind of not so much, but uh, what is a regular day for a PSS uh, Blackwater guy in two thousand five Iraq? So it was different for us. We were working for the State Department initially when I went over. The contract hadn't quite been taken over by the State Department, and right. they hadn't given the sovereignty back to Iraq. Okay. So we rolled down. I went into Baghdad, and then um, couple of my, one of my buddies was killed like a month in. Dang. From a roadside IED, right? And um, James Cantrell. Okay. And we, uh, his, his call sign was Tracker. And, okay. Uh, and, I mean, like, literally just a couple of days ago, man. Or actually, I'll take that back. A couple of days from now, um, he was killed uh, March 12, 2005. Wow. And so we were literally in country, no time at all. He went straight down to Karbala in Najaf and mm-hmm. in Hilla. He was all operating in that, that southern region. And uh, they had dropped off a dude at the airport. And back then, they were still running the roads. So and it was a it was a Mad Max soft suburban with a bunch of metal steel yeah. plates like it was just Mad Max type stuff right yeah. you know and so it wasn't properly armored anyway he was in the well and um, him and uh, Bruce Durr were killed that day by roadside IED on the way back from from uh, from uh, Baghdad International Airport sorry to hear that man yeah, man and so yeah he was a good dude man he's former Marine he was a yeah. cop he was a customs agent and then left. Same thing, like I right. gotta go, gotta go, you know, go over, man. I'm gonna, gonna get back into it, right? So, right. and and doing the right thing for the right reasons. So they were killed, and I went down to replace them uh, after not long after he was killed. Okay, and um, and was down there, and it was different because we were still operating very loosely. We had one client, we had our own little fob within a fob, mm-hmm. in our own little compound within this fob down there in Kabbala, and. Um, and dude, it was like it was good life. You worked out. Yeah. If you ran a mission, you know, you either got up early and ran a mission. We run, dude. We would run straight up bumper to bumper, you know, or either under nods from Karbala back up to Hilla. What are nods? Uh, night vision goggles. Night, night. So yep. the old greens, man. We had yeah. the old yeah. So so we run there, or we we do some some mission into town to the GCC, which is a. Basically, the government building. So uh, what Blackwater did back then, for people that don't know, is that uh, a, a, an important person, a VIP, if you will, an executive, would get a contract uh, with them. And uh, your job, your team's job, was to protect them as they moved through, uh, through the, basically a battlefield. Because 
let's be honest. Well, I guess I've never been to the green zone. Uh, you know, I was a I was an infantry marine, so right. I was always in the dirt. But um, all of Iraq is a combat zone. There right. was no battlefield. It right. was literally street by street, road by road, field by field. Yeah. Uh, and you got it was an insurgency. Insurgency. So you never knew who the enemy was really. Yeah. No was. uniforms. Yeah. And you're yeah. dealing with you're dealing with the Iranians. You know the Quds Force that are sending yeah. guys over there. You're dealing with you know the the Shia. Uh, yeah. Militia, um, Muqtada al-Assad, all that. So you had all these different factions. Chesnians, one, one of our guys was killed by a Chesnian sniper. I, uh, you know, I tell that story sometimes too, man. We got into an ambush, a V-bid uh, with the ambush, and, uh, you know, we uh, we engaged an individual with a Mark 19, which is a grenade-launching machine gun. Uh, and once we, go, once we went to go check the objective, it was a white dude, and it just blew all of our minds because yep. at the time – you know, we were kind of all just thought, you know, Iraqi, 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 Middle yeah. Eastern, Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern. Right. And then this is the same time, same time, 05. This they is, uh, I was there, uh, Lord, um, from January to August of 05. So I'm in Fallujah at the time, uh, second tour to Fallujah. And yeah, man, we got into a firefight with these dudes and we started noticing that all these non-Middle Eastern men were engaging us. And it, that blew my mind, dude. That blew my mind. I was not ready it's for the that. the jihad. I, yeah, 100%. Muslims are, come from all... People didn't know that they basically went out and was like, hey, if you guys want to come and get some of these yeah. Americans, yeah. these these uh, these dirty, you know, right. <laughs> Westerners, uh, you can come here Infidels. and fight us. And that's what they did. Yeah, uh, yeah dude. We, uh, we, got a, we got in a tick with a, a black dude from Chad, Africa, come to yeah. find out. We got into a tick with a dude from Malaysia, like your mind, you know, you know, as a as a warfighter, man, you compartmentalize stuff. Um, yeah. And I know there's a lot of negative negative connotation when you talk about compartmentalize. But in order for you to do the job, you have to be able to take those regular human emotions. And for a lot of us, you put it on standby. And um, it's conditioning. It's conditioning. Well, That's why targets are shaped the way they're shaped. But and you know, you think about like being hungry. You ever been hungry long enough? You just stop being hungry. Yeah. Until all of a sudden it just hits you out of nowhere. Right. It was the same thing where you know you you see and do these things and you compartmentalize everything and then so you know you're conditioned like hey Middle Eastern man sure. Middle Eastern man everything you do is Middle Eastern man and you right. get in this gunfight and you go up there and you're like holy crap this yep. dude's from Europe. Yep. You know he's Russian he's Chechnyan. Yep. It's like what? Yeah, yeah. And so, think about ISIS. Think about all the all the different you know nationalities, uh, Anglo's, Americans yeah. that went to ISIS after you know that quagmire began. Right. You know, I never forget that dude. What was that dude's name who went to uh, the Taliban? Remember that guy, yeah. white dude, the long hair back yeah, in like oh one oh two in Afghanistan. Well, that was the soldier. I'm talking about the guy, who vo- civilian who volunteered for Taliban back in. Uh, uh, there's, been a, there's been a few. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah you can't, you, was was it ISIS? No, Taliban. back then it was Taliban. 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 Oh, you know, yeah. Uh, had long, yeah. long hair, and he was from California. I know exactly what you're figure. talking about. But uh, anyways, so that was how by the long? Time that Nick Berg was was beheaded. Yep, right. About the same time. Yeah. Yep, Nick Berg. Uh, that's funny. You brought Nick Berg up. I was on. Uh, I was on the op with the FBI agents to locate uh, where he was. Uh, uh, assassinated. Wow. It was in Fallujah. It was in the southeast corridor of Fallujah. And I remember these two civilians showing up at our little fob. It was a uh, a bombed-out soda can factory. I don't know why they decided to drop a 500-pound bomb on this soda can factory, but the unit before us claimed that there was a bunch of insurgents in there. But anyways, 
They dropped a 500-pound bomb on his warehouse, and we were living in the office building and stuff around it, and these civilians show up at high speed, and we're like, one's a female, which as an infantry Marine back in you know the global war on terrorism, uh, I didn't see females no. unless they were civilians, you know, other Iraqis. Um, and she comes, her and another dude by themselves come up, got luggage, like not anything tactical, like straight up a suitcase. And they're on her fob. They hop off of a Humvee and they, they're like, all right, we're going to stay here. And next thing you know, we start getting a mission brief and they're like, Hey, we're looking for Nick Berg, the place where Nick Berg got killed. And, um, we did a, a cordon and knock on a couple of houses. And one of the houses that my squad ended up going into was the place that he was killed. And we found, uh, that like silky orange suit he was wearing. And uh, we found the videotape, the original videotape. They tried to bury it, and it was kind of like in a shallow grave in the front yard. And I remember talking to the, the FBI. I think they were FBI. Sure. I think I assumed they were FBI. I'm not sure, honestly. But anyways, she was like, oh, we can we can put this tape together. It was old school VHS that they had ripped out of the wow. cassette. And then they put it in a grocery bag and put it in the ground and tried to cover it. And they took his bloody uh, uh, little tracksuit, whatever it was, that little silky orange thing he was wearing, and uh, tried to bury that too. So that's funny, man. Yeah, I, I was I was on that op. That was weird. That was a weird time in Iraq because I remember we were all scared, and that's when I got this tattoo on my collarbone that says, uh, uh, "Only the strong survive." Uh, Lord, keep me strong. Uh, but everybody was running around getting right. neck neck tattoos because we thought we were all gonna get beheaded, you right. know. But uh, yeah, because you you saw it, you know. I got yeah. a buddy that's got a toe tag tattoo. Put toe tag here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that's cool. And, and I got another buddy had a he had a, a broken line around his neck, you yeah. know, tattooed dotted line cut here. Oh, okay, yeah. all right. Just <laughs> just that brazen, you know. Yeah. Apathetic attitude and about it. Iraq was a different place back then. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was the Wild West. George Bush was still president, yeah. so. Our ROEs were a little bit different. Uh, you know, we switched from, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom, you know, which was a liberation, and then we turned into, an, you know, fighting an insurgency. So yeah. how long were you uh, on Blackwater? How many tours did you do over there to Iraq? Man, I, I did a bunch. You know, we first one I did was was uh, almost a year, and then I went home for like two weeks or something. And then, and then after that, it was like six months, three months, four Are you, months. Were you married at this time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was married. What did, what did she, my first marriage? What she was she not say? happy. Yeah, it's part of the reason why we're divorced now. Cause probably because I, I went back. Yeah, yeah, probably. I went, I left, came home, took a job, went back. It was just one of the circumstances where, you know, I had a major pain moment. Like, truth of the matter is, I just got to get a job. <laughs> 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 got to be somebody needs some killing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and kid, what do you say? You know, and business <laughs> is good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know that's that's uh, but you know, and all jokes aside, I, I just went through a tough time. She had like a back injury and had surgery, couldn't work. So I was like, I gotta, go, I gotta, I gotta go go make some money. I gotta make up two salaries now, you yeah. know. And so we were, we were just middle class people living paycheck to paycheck. So yeah, I didn't do it. But uh, well, I was over there for a while. Worked my way up from uh, window liquor up to to the pencil pusher, detail leader. Right? Okay, went, went through shift leader. The deputy detail leader, the detail leader, and, and did some really cool stuff. Did George Bush's detail? He came over nice. his first visit. Yeah, you know, did his. Did uh, Dick Cheney? I was on the ambassador's detail for a while. Nice. I moved around because I wanted to experience as much as I could. Yeah, all the different aspects of uh, basically executive protection is what it is. Dignitary yeah. protection. Yeah, because I figured that eventually I would come back to the states or go wherever, and I would continue doing it. Right, but it was a totally different world. It was, and it's and it's really strange because like a lot of us. Uh, wanted to do that or got into it 
and once you get into it, you're you thinking that it's the same here in America? It's not. It's not. It's a total different animal. You are a concierge slash bodyguard here doing doing executive protection yeah. stateside. Yeah. You're, you're going to have to go fetch coffee. You're an armed butler. Right, armed butler. There armed you go. butler. You're going to have to carry a grocery bag or something. Yep. It, it's going to happen. Yeah, and over there, uh, I think I, I think it's your, I, I call it, you know, a real PSD. You're a real it's the PSD. closest thing. I mean, we did the high threat. I, yeah. I worked my way from high threat where we had Suburbans, you know, all the detail, bastard detail, for instance. We had Humvees with 50s. You know, yeah. as bookends. Yeah. And our, our hate truck in the back, you know, we had a helicopter, we had a little bird support overhead. You know, I worked low pro, which is basically we drove sedans. They were uh-huh. like level one, level two, you know, just above soft skin. Right. Sedans and BMWs and Mercedes Benz, we blend in. Right. Kind of like what, what the agency does. And then uh, I ended up in Afghanistan and where I ended up doing basically an indigenous type movement where I blended in. You couldn't even tell if we were who we were. Because we look just like the populace. Can you talk about what that mission was? Yeah, yeah, sure. It was called Special Projects, and yeah. it was stood up by a couple of uh, Dev Grew guys way back. Yeah, and it was just basically just that to not stand out. Yeah, we drove old vans. We dressed like Afghans. We we looked just like the populace. What was some of your uh, clients back then, if you could speak? Well, on we it. did no. We did the boss man. We did uh, okay. EP. He came over for a visit. You know, okay. Prince, and um, we did. Everybody, non-government agencies, we did anybody and everybody uh, that were part of our organization, part of other organizations, we were guns for hire. And they wanted to go from point A to point, point B. Point A to point B. Airport runs uh, in town. We were, you know, they call it the tactical taxi cab. But, we just, yeah. but what's funny is one of my team leaders, uh, he was retired dev guru. He's like, he was so low-key, easygoing dude. He's like, we're just taxi cab drivers, man, with guns. That's yeah. all we are. Yeah. And it's true. And, and that was the least amount of stress that I'd ever had doing the job. Really? And the most fun. Because, yeah, man, we, we could go anywhere in that country as long as we didn't have to interact and speak. Right. Like Darcy or Farsi. Yeah. You know, we didn't have to, like, I could I understood a little bit of both, but I couldn't have a conversation like you and I are having. Right, right, right. So I would eventually be exposed. But I had one dude actually see me in a PX at Kia, Kia the, the Kabul International Airport, right outside of like a German PX, like on the grounds right. of Kia. And kept looking at me, looking at me, looking at me, looking at my partner. I was dressed like an Afghan. He goes, Kandahar, Kandahar. He thought I was from Kandahar. Huh. I literally blended in that well. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was to my favor. That's an adrenaline rush, man. Your dude. first time your first time growing a beard out and long hair and then wearing uh wearing local garb and going yeah. out. The dude. vest, man jammies, the the hat. What is it called? A tuna, a tunic. No, that's I know not you're talking tuna. about something they have a hat for a name for it, yeah. but it looks, like, it looks like a baker's hat, right? So it just smushed down. Did you get into any tiffs, a ticks while you were there? Uh, Not on that one. I did yeah. in Iraq. Yeah. You know, when we were doing the high pro stuff. Right. I did. I had some, my first interaction there working in that. Ambush? Yeah, it was a vehicle. It was a BBID. They mm. rolled up, tried to roll up on us and yeah. ended up, um, you know, dispatched taking it out with a, yeah. with a, yeah, dispatched them with a, with a PKM because we actually had nice weapons. Yeah. Nice. Dude, that if I if I could carry anything, it would be like an AK or or a PKM well, yeah. in that environment because they're the tolerances are so loose. Yeah, you yeah. pour dirt in them and they're still gonna fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen dust covers off of AKs; they still fire. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, hundred percent. And that PKM, that thing was bulletproof. We used to run them like when we captured them, we tried to run them over a tank, and even still, with a bent gas tube, yeah, they would still fire. Yeah, yeah. You got to think what Klistikov was doing. He was making. A gun that was made for the lowest common denominator, wicked window licking knuckle draggers. Uh, he a mission accomplished. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you right now. Yeah, 
even if uh, even if the AK was single shot, it's still fired. You oh, know, yeah. it's like it's still it's still good to go. Yeah, they're amazing tools, man. So, yeah. what made you uh, get out of the uh, that game at the time with uh, you know with so, Blackwater? Yeah, just a rough time of my marriage, man. You know, I had little, three little girls by then, and and they um, were growing up without me, and so I tried to come home and um, rocky marriage. You know, yeah. I wasn't dude. I was in a rough place, you know, yeah. dark place. Just, I got you. Just, trying to figure out who I was and, and what, what I was meant to do. And I was drinking a lot and I was, um, you know, just, just trying to, to numb myself, mm-hmm. you know, cause of all the things I saw. And I didn't realize it too, man, until years later that, yeah, I've, I've had some, I've had some touches of that and I feel the effects of, of the stress, you know, mm-hmm. um, I don't have it near as bad as some of my, you know, a lot of my buddies have had it, and you know, but I feel it, and I can, especially well, in Afghanistan. I want you to know that I, I recognize your humility, and I know you probably won't accept it, and a lot of guys who are sitting in your seat that I've talked to, they don't accept it because that's the type of hoot guy you are. It's the type of guy I am, but you know, uh, we we say stuff like, you know, oh, you know, it you know, it affected me a little bit, but there was guys who had a little bit more, but. Uh, I understand like uh, the things that you did and where you come from, and most of my listeners do too. And we understand that, you know, it does affect you. It does bother you. Yeah, man. Well, when you see you. bodies piled up like cordwood during yeah. the Sunni Shia uprising, mm-hmm. in the height of it, man, I, I took we took a principal to the uh, Ministry of Health. Right. What's was a principal? Run by Muqtadr al Sadr. What's a principal? Uh, okay, so our main our protectee, the person we were protecting, right. and it was a State Department dignitary. Okay. Uh, mid-level, low-level. Uh, she loved him. Was very much left-leaning, liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember Tony Beach, one of my, my buddies. Man, uh, he was he was my partner. He was my I was a detail leader at the time. He was we would switch back and forth from leader detail leader detail. Like he would take over, and I would go on rotation, go home, yeah. vice versa. But he were we were tight. We still are today. Anyway, he's an old school cop as well, former marine, uh-huh. and uh, had a lot had some shoots under his belt. Where he, you know he he knew violence, and uh-huh. so. Growing up in Atlanta, he knew what was up. So anyway, he, he reminded me. He goes, hey, man, and he handed me a jar of Vicksab. He goes, you're going to the Ministry of Health. They had no power. Like in the morgue, right? Oh. You, had the, you had the big building, which yeah. had power yeah. most of the time. Yeah. But then it would, it would have those rolling blackouts. Mm-hmm. But on the other side of the road where the tunnel led to the morgue, yeah. there was no power. Mm-hmm. These bodies were stacked up in there like cordwood. And, and we're talking about when, when um, Zarqawi was Zarqawi. out there doing evil things yeah. to people. Cutting the people's heads off, sewing dog heads on, yeah. taking a power drill, drilling into their head, into their chest, mm-hmm. torturing people. Yeah. Those bodies were there. I saw them on two eyes. Torturing Iraqis, his yes. own his own country, his man. own countrymen. Yeah. yeah. And so I was there, and that's the, they hate each other. The Sunnis and Shias. Yeah. And you got to understand. So Saddam was a Sunni, and they mm-hmm. were the minority. Right. The Shia were the were the majority, and mm-hmm. the majority within Iran. Right. So Iran sympathized with the Shia and wanted to prop them up. Right, and the difference between Sunni and Shia is one one believes that the uh, the the supreme uh, what do they call that guy Muhammad. Uh, that will they believe? Uh, I'm have to Google this now, but uh, they believe that the well, it was a split after Muhammad died. Like the the, the main sheikh right. is supposed allegedly a descendant of uh, Muhammad. Of Muhammad, right? And the other a group deity. doesn't believe that, right? And I don't, I don't know which one it is, but well, and there's there's a lot to it. What you can um, yeah, there's a lot to it. That's, there, simple, that's oversimplifying it. but yeah, yeah, well, there's a book I read at the time, and I had to learn about this stuff. It's called The Politically, Politi- Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam, and it laid out all that. And everything you need to know, you can find in the Hadith. The Hadith is like was like Muhammad's diary. He lays out all the violence there. He lays out all the pillaging, the raping, the robbing, everything. Okay, so I'll tell you what Google says. All right, this is the first thing. All right, it says that, 
those who followed the prophet's closest companion, I guess a friend, became known as Sunnis, and the followers of the prophet's example, Sunnah, those who followed the prophet's cousin and son-in-law became known as Shia, right. the followers of the prophet of Ali Shia. So and that was where, again, that's where the split took place after Muhammad died. Yeah. Because they just they wanted to take over power. And that was what Muhammad was all about anyway. Not to get a philosophical conversation about the the political ideology that is Islam, but that that is where see, see Muhammad was a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus before he started Islam. Yeah. I see, like, people need to understand what Islam is all about, where it came so. from and, and what where it, where it's led to. Right? Um and so not to get into all that and create strife and any of this, but the, the truth is the truth and let the truth shine the light on this world. And that's what Jesus taught. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is what we were to, to follow regardless of the popularity of it. And that's the thing that people lose sight of. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. the truth is truth. Right. And that can't, the truth does not displace truth. Amen. And so there is for, you know, you, you, you understand that is, is the reality of it. So, but going back to what we, you know, seeing those things and seeing those bodies there, smelling that, seeing the body fluid, you know, and realizing the, the true violent nature of people. Right. And that these people truly do not value human life. They'll make another. Yeah. They send their kids off to, to blow themselves up. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. There's, where, where is the glory in that? Where yeah. is the true love in that? There's, love conquers all. Love is the ultimate strongest force in this, in this whole universe. Yeah. And so, therefore, if you truly love someone, you would you would want them to be whole. You would want them to succeed. You would want them to do good in the world, yeah. not be violent and, and murder other people in the True. sake, in the name of a, of a, of a false deity. Right. And yeah. it is. So, uh, you come home, life kind of is, is going rough, and you, you finally come home after being a uh, private security contractor for so long, living that lifestyle. Um, describe how, how that was getting used to back being in America, dealing with the end of that relationship potentially, uh, and trying to change Mr. Puckett, Scott, yeah. how to changing yourself into becoming better. So then it was just a numbing feeling. Like I, I had no clue what was going on. I had no clue how bad, you know, she was hurting or, or whatever she was dealing with. And right. I was just kind of just going through the motions. Right. And, um, and just trying to do the best I can keep the, the, the lights on the roof over my head and everything. Yeah. And, and so, it's funny you say that because a lot of us men, especially the ones who were raised, like my parents are older, dude. And so I was taught like as a man, like that's my sole purpose. Provide. Just provide. That's right. And we disconnect. Yeah, we do. Uh, we we do. desensitize ourselves. Right. The job requires us to desensitize. Right. I'll right. say that. Right. And so when you start trying to have that relationship, right. um, God taught me, is teaching me, he's teaching me a lesson, ladies and gentlemen. I have four daughters. Just so you know, I have four daughters. Which is proof that God has a sense of you. It's 100% he thinks it's funny because I'm going to tell you right now, uh, I was at the point in my life where like someone crying was like one of the most, it disgusted me. I'm like, what are you doing? It's weak, and, uh, soft. That's <laughs> honestly like, oh man, I would like have this mental, this turn inward and be like, jeez, oh, I can't believe you're crying. But then God gives me four daughters, and you know what daughters do, you know? I mean, they can they could watch a puppy commercial, and now I've got four daughters and a wife crying, you know, wanting me to go buy a puppy. You know, we're watching a movie. I force my kids to watch the old uh, Homeward Bound movie uh, <laughs> with the dogs, you know, from Disney back in the 90s. 
And of course, my daughters are all crying and stuff because the old dog's like, you know, dying and stuff. But great movie though. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so so you asked like what was it like? Um, yeah, yeah, and I had to look it up. But uh, remember the movie Hurt Locker? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so he comes home, he goes to the grocery store, he's walking in the aisles, and he's like, yeah. looking at all these options. Yeah, you know, and he just he's just he's just kind of numb, he's stunned. You know, mm-hmm. it was a, it was a pretty good movie in that sense that it kind of depicts how life is when you come back home after being in that environment, mm-hmm. and and then you enjoy it because the fact of the matter is is like someone cooks for you. Someone washes your clothes, right? You don't have to think about those. You're talking things. about overseas. Yeah, in Iraq, yeah, Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah, like when you're on a fob. Yep. You know, uh, you, you take your clothes in a basket. You know, they by then they had contractors. You know, you got all these different contractors doing all this work. You, you, your clothes get washed. Someone feeds you. Go to the chow hall. You don't have to think about it. You take your tray. You put it in the little dishwasher mm-hmm. bin, and you leave. It's like, you know, life is good. I work out, and then I work. Yeah. And then I and then I come home back to my. I say home. I come back to my hole. My little hooch or whatever that little right. wherever they place you in a Connex yeah, box, in whatever the back of a Connex box somewhere. Yeah, and then you repeat it and you do it over and over and over again until it's until it's done. And right. dude, that's autopilot, and you don't have to think. The only thing you got to think about is how to keep your team alive. You are not lying. And do the job and do it do it efficiently and effectively, and get get out of there. And in our case, appreciate and enjoy the spoils of our hard work. That's mm-hmm. the money, mm-hmm. you know, as a contractor. Right? People don't understand like. You're on your own. Like, there's no insurance. There's no retirement. Right. You figure it out. It's on you. Yeah. And so that that coming home like that, man, it was like a surreal, you know, trying to figure it out. And a dude, edgy, edgy yeah. and angry yeah. and just, you know, just just like ready to take on the world. And, and the same thing, just, just being very judgmental. Mm-hmm. And, dude, it was poison. And my girls could feel it. You know, I knew that it was not healthy. Yeah. You know, I had to make some decisions. Yeah. Did you – uh so what what was your walk with Christ at that time? Did you start turning? Not there. Not there still? I, yeah. I, mean, trying I, to, I was running. I was trying to. Who knows? I was probably in the in the whale's mouth by then. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was dealing with this dark, cold, wet place where I was like, what am I doing here? So how much longer after that do you decide that you're going to move on to the next job? And where was it at? So from there, I did contract work at home where I was actually working for a security company at home yeah. doing head of security at an insurance company. And then that's when uh, at the time my ex-wife had a back injury. I had to go back. Went back over to Iraq. Things had changed. It was starting to, you know, uh, Obama had taken over by then, right, and, it right. was, and it was the rules of engagement were just, mm-hmm. it was ridiculous. Like they, they were people were getting killed, maimed, murdered. It was just ugly. Uh-huh. But I went back over doing the job. You know, figured it out. This time I was in no leadership role. It was awesome. I enjoyed it <laughs> immensely. Yeah, the contract was up. Blackwater lost the contract. It was after Nisor Square. So, which if you're if you're familiar, it's the. Uh, the um, the incident, I'll call it, the incident uh, at the square where uh, some civilians and some contractors got into an engagement with each other. The best way to describe what took place without really getting deep down into that is that if you've ever seen the movie Rules of Engagement with Samuel L. Jackson, which yeah. the Marine security yeah. guards are up on the roof, yep. they shoot into the crowd who are shooting at them, mm-hmm. and then when they when it's over and the smoke clears, there's bodies laying there and no guns, and uh-huh. they're all civilian clothes. So it looks like they've murdered a bunch of civilians. Innocent people, yeah. So that's basically, in essence, what happened. It was a real deal. Those guys were defending themselves. Which was normal uh, standard operating procedure for the Mujahideen and yep. the jihadists in Iraq. Uh, literally the entire time in Iraq, that was yep. standard operating procedures, what they did. And they do, and they, they've been doing it in Gaza, the West Bank. Yep. yep, they, yep. They've been doing it for years over there. It's mm-hmm. all psy- psyops. Yeah, 100%. Yep. Yeah. And so, so it did that, and then we lost the contract that came home. 
I took a few months off, just kind of figure out what was going on. I was single by then, and uh, just being, just being, um, just just living that 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 bad life, man, and, mm-hmm. and knowing that I didn't like where I was or who I was at the time, and trying to figure out like what I was going to do, and and there is where when I was there in Iraq. I, I, I'll never forget this day, man. I was hurting so bad. I found out I was getting divorced while I was in Iraq. Oh, man. I got a, I got a phone call, basically, oh, man. after I'd figured some things out. And I don't want to get Jeez. deep in – I don't want to get into how or what took place, but I got you. it was a situation where it was inevitable and it was going to happen. Like I, I didn't you. know it when I was at home, but I found it out after the fact. Right. So, anyway, that was inevitable. It was going to happen. So, I remember I was praying. And I was like, God, I was just in a bad place hurting, man. I was in, a, I was in my little, little – uh, Connex box there in the man camp there in Baghdad, dude, just crying my eyes out, praying to God like, please give me some relief. My chest is hurting. I'm in pain. Yeah, I'm just I'm just praying and calling out to God, and I said, God, I need to talk to somebody, and I know this, right? Right. I quit drinking and everything. I was like, I need to talk to somebody because I got to get this off my chest and if I'm gonna survive because I feel like I'm dying. It's like losing a family member. It's like losing someone to death. Right? right. Right. And so I prayed, and he and I walked across the street to the to the to Saddam's palace, which was the embassy okay, on the yeah. Tigris right yeah. there at the, at the bend. And I met Brent Causey. He had just come into country. He was a, he was a, a, a chaplain mm-hmm. for the army. Right. He was a tough dude. And I said, I said, because what I prayed was like, God put in front of me, a man, a real man, a man capable of violence, a man that can see things the way I see it. Right. A man that's capable of putting me in my place. Right. And when I prayed that, I walked across the street. I walked into the chaplaincy, into the office where the chaplains were, and there he was. Brent Causey, he just got there. He was a major in the Army. Dang. And he he sat me down. Dude, this dude was a collegiate wrestler. He was a man of Christ his whole life. He played the guitar. He always knew what he was going to be, right? He knew yeah. his walk. He never drank. He just was – I'm not saying he was a goody-two-shoe guy. He was a tough dude. Yeah. I mean, a collegiate wrestler. Right. You know, uh, uh, that meddled. Like, he, he was wow. – um, he fought some big names and and or, or wrestled some big names. He was a tough dude. Just you could look at him. He was a big dude, big brawny dude, and he he loved Christ. Wow. And he was just an awesome, awesome. Like he there was no doubt in my mind that that the pain I was going into that God heard my prayers. When He does, He yeah. hears our prayers. Yeah. He we speak it. He gave us authority in Genesis. It says right there. Right. I give you dominion over this earth. That's it. Right. And so. And then Jesus, before he left, right, he he says, he says right here, and I and I kept this the scripture, and I wanted to to remember it because it was it was important that 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 we know this, right, and that you know, and and what he he told me, he's like, this is the man right here in front of you, and I sat down and I talked to him, and 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 he told me basically straight up that that things are going to get worse before they get better, yeah. And he he was so right, man. Everything he told me, he's like Scott. He said, and I remember like the whole one of the biggest problems I had was like starting over. And he said, Scott, you've been starting over your whole life because I told him my story, and it's true, man. I've been starting over my whole life, you know, because I'm constantly I was I was a nomad. I was constantly looking for that challenge, something that was going to quench my thirst for this thing of this world. Yeah. And all the time I was ignoring what God had promised, and and now I'm seeing this, man. And and, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find the scripture, but uh, but basically Jesus said, and it was in John, and he says, he says, I'm, I'm leaving now. Right. And going to be with the Father. And now is 
you will do works that I have done, but much greater. Yeah. Right. And I'm paraphrasing the scripture, but and it's in John 15, and he and he and he said that, and he and he's telling us that we have the power, our tongue, the power of our speak, our words, right, either breaks down or builds up, right. Think yeah. about the walls of Jericho, right? When when they broke down the walls of Jericho, was it Jericho? And um, when they spoke and sang, and then and then the wall, the the, the Israelites uh, spoke, and then the walls fell. Yeah, well, they all shouted and they blew yeah, the shout, yeah. Yep. Uh, and and so and I'm 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 really showing my lack of my ignorance and and remembering my scripture. Um, let's see what what I've got is uh, check out fifteen chapter fifteen John chapter fifteen. No, actually, this is yeah John chapter fourteen verse fifteen. Um, and it's basically where uh, Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, so. It says, because I live, you also live. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's that, like, this is my, the scripture I keep here on my, that I've got tattooed on my arm is John eleven twenty five. 25. Yeah. Is that, is that even though a man, if a man believes in me, even though he may die, he will live. Yeah. And he'll live for eternity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that reminds me, man. And so how long, uh, how long did you get to have a relationship with this chaplain? Was you, so I was there for uh, I spoke to him for weeks, man. I yeah. would go in and out and just just I was just seeking just a counsel. Lot of pain. Yeah, a lot of pain, man. A lot yeah. of Bible study time. A lot of just trying to inner reflection and trying to figure out what was going on, what I was going to do. Right. And then, like I said, they we lost the contract. I came home, you know, and I went through another dark time where I was just kind of got off course and kind of I'm single. I'm running wild again. I'm yeah. back. I'm back to being Jonah running yeah. from Nineveh. Yeah. Right. All along, man, in my voice, in my mind, in my heart, I feel this. This, this, like you have work to do. You have work to do. You have, a, you have. A, there is a the task I have for you. I have a task for you, and I keep yeah. hearing that over and over and over again. So I go back and end up going to Afghanistan. And I spent time there. I met a girl. I thought I was going to marry her, but you know, it, it fell apart. And then I realized that all along, the woman that I thought I needed in my life, who I was supposed to be with, right. was not that woman at all. Hmm. And then when I prayed about it, I was like, like God. Like, where am I? Who am I supposed to be with? I know I'm supposed to be married. I know I'm supposed to be with a woman. And I know that, like, I want that in my life. Yeah. And I need that. And I need someone that's tough. And that's when I met Misty. Wow. Uh, So talk about uh, the comfort that prayer brings. I think a lot of dudes, they they think it's silly, you know, especially guys who are non-believers or, like we said, lukewarm believers. Uh, I I was talking um, to... uh, uh, Bryce Self, uh, we did an episode with him, and he worked for the NSA. But uh, I told him that you know sometimes I think I, I feel like I pray a hundred times a day, and I don't under, I don't know about a life without prayer because I need it so bad to just open up and say because I think one of the biggest problems with a lot of us dudes is that we're really horrible at communicating. True, we will teach a class on the intricacies of entering and exiting a building under fire. Yeah. But when it comes to having a conversation about what's going on in our life, right. we won't say anything. Right, it's true. And you know what I mean? Yeah, we hide that away. And and people don't understand that God wants that. He wants to hear your voice. Mm-hmm. And you have and, and it's and again, we're we're taught that go find that secret place, go hide, have that that intimate time in the mornings, you know, or whenever it is that you can do it, you, that you make that time. You know, and that's something that I've got to to be better at and getting up early and 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 you know, I do get up early. It's just that it's it's being disciplined that getting that time alone. But then you're out. You're right. Throughout the day, 
speaking that and 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 speaking to God and then listening. Mm-hmm. And that's another big part of it. We speak with authority that is given to us uh-huh. that God gave us that Jesus reminded us of before right. he, before he left this earth where he's crucified and he, and he he they he tells us the blueprint how to do it and we speak, you know, to him. And then we speak with authority what we what we desire, what we need, what we right. want, the things we want, the healing healing others even mm-hmm. bringing people back from the dead people think that's yeah. that's so crazy that that it's not going to happen that's but it's there the power is there the holy yeah. spirit is is an amazing powerful thing that is god's spirit yeah right that is one he's yeah. one and he sends that to us and we ask for it you know the best thing is about uh the the holy spirit and uh jesus is that uh in that verse you're talking about he says uh well the NIV calls it an advocate um and some other yes. uh some yeah. some other uh some other translations call it a paraclete, and a lot of people don't know what a paraclete is or what what it was. But in uh, Roman times, a paraclete was your battle buddy. Yeah, and so that meant sometimes when they were in battle, they would get back to back, right? And that's how they fought. They would get back to back with your paraclete, yep. which was your battle buddy, and you would go into battle that way. And so when you think about Jesus, and it, uh, I love the fact that the Bible constantly uses military ideas and concepts to. To, to express things because a lot of people miss it, especially guys who aren't in the military. But the idea of having a paraclete, people don't understand the bond of a brother that is with you from thick and thin. Accountability, too. And that's the same thing. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's right. now my paraclete. The Holy Spirit's also my battle buddy. That's right. So that means whatever I go through, I've got... The, the 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 love of Christ and uh, so anyways had some technical difficulties but uh, we were talking about uh, the Paraclete and the Holy Spirit being uh, your uh, your battle bro battle buddy so uh, how long after that um, do you kind of get life back on track and start working for another police agency. So uh, I finally came home. I, I, in 2011, I, I made a decision. It was like January, February 2011. Um, I was like, I can't, I can't keep doing this, man. I got three daughters. I have to be home for them. And if I keep this and keep rolling the dice, odds and probability, it's gonna come, right? right? And so I made the decision. I came home. I bit the bullet. Started over completely, man. It was a rough time. I went through some some rough times, man. And um, and and then. That's actually when I met Misty. Okay. And that summer, you know, that that August, and uh, and like I said, I've been praying, man. Like, please just show me where you want me to be. And through that, all these all this time, I went back to Richland County and was working for them. I was I became the uh, basically the wellness coordinator. I was over the gym. Okay. And I worked in training. Nice. So through my connections and through the 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 path that God led me down, I, I met. Uh, Bobby and Brandon Millsaps. They okay. are they ran CrossFit um, Sport of Fitness in Columbia. Okay. Uh, Brandon, incidentally, was a Marine. Okay. You know, active duty Marine recruiter go. at the time was on orders there recruiting officers for the Marine Corps. Nice. Sharp people, man. And then uh, Bobby was working full time for CrossFit. She still is. So they mentored me, and and I through them did an internship and, and become a CrossFit coach. Nice. And so. I'd always been involved in physical fitness and I always wanted to coach, but I didn't realize I, I knew that um, that my calling was to be a teacher. Right. I've, I've always known that. I've been told as a, as a young boy in high school, you have a gift, you have a gift, you know, you you are your connection with people, you have mm-hmm. an ability to connect to people. I and can so, vouch for that. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, that, man. And so and 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 so there I started cultivating that physical fitness coaching. 
And it was a natural progression and then worked for another couple of companies teaching for them and really started honing in. Um, and I'll, and I'll give, I'll give credit to Tony Blower with, uh, the spear system, right? Okay. Um, a lot of people hate on him, but he's, Tony was a great teacher, awesome teacher. He was, he developed a program, um, on coaching and teaching. And through that, I found a lot of those, those pearls and nuggets, man, that were just really awesome ways to build my teaching yeah. and to, to hone my, my edge to be a better teacher. So it just progressed from there and I kept growing. I kept getting challenges. I, I was, I went out to, I took a team out to do the Kokora challenge with Mark Devine, Seal Fit. Okay. And basically yeah. they, they basically run you through uh, like a mini hell week. Yeah. Okay. And I took a team of cops out there for that through Greg Amundsen, another believer who, Greg Amundsen was one of the – he's the original fire breather, right, through CrossFit. Oh, okay. Greg, Greg Amundsen was in law enforcement. He still is. Uh, uh, just got word he's down in Fletzy now teaching. Wow. And um, Greg is a an awesome, awesome, on-fire, Jesus-loving, hard dude. Like, yeah. Like very capable of violence, trains, got no problem, like, putting hands on people, you know, but he's a, just a loving dude. Yeah. And so – you know, through all these interactions and this path, man, like that's where God was leading me. Yeah. So I got to that, and then from there, it just it it brought me back home. You know, um, by then Mar- Missy and I'd been married. Uh, we got married in 2012. Um, eight months after we met, because I knew she was the one. <laughs> she's, I met her in a gym. Yeah. Right. She's sweating. She's dirty. Yeah. Like she just it didn't phase her. Didn't phase me. I just knew it. I yeah. could tell. She had this aura about her, like she had this spirit of just power, strength, yeah. and tenacity, and she's beautiful and athletic, and everything that that it, like God was like, "There's your wife," and I knew it from the beginning. Nice. He's like, "This is the woman you're going to marry." She didn't know it. And she was like, <laughs> just trying to get away from me. I'm divorced. I got three kids. Yeah. I'm older. You know, I live in Columbia. She lives in Myrtle Beach. She's like, I don't think so. But uh, but I had other plans. Yeah, and God did too. Yeah, and so here we are now. Ten years later, we're still married. Yeah, right. And uh, we don't have any kids, but we have plenty of fur babies. Right. That's what I she, got you. We got a whole slew. We she I call her the kennel master. Yeah, she's got. We got five dogs, three cats, a tortoise, now two horses. A tortoise. Actually, three horses. Yeah, a tortoise. Okay. And so so uh, I, okay. So what year did you retire from law enforcement? March twenty. Of this year? Uh, 20, no. 2020. 2020. Yeah. March 20. Okay. March 20. Yeah. March 20. 2020. Yep. In the middle of COVID. COVID pops off. Yeah. So I was working part time there as a training sergeant. I went back out to Lexington at that okay. time and was working and finished up there because I was working for another company again. Yeah. So one thing I've got to make sure that I want to make clear is that, like, I knew back in 2003, 2004 that I didn't want to be in law enforcement anymore. Yeah. Like, I was just, I, I'd had enough. I felt like it was. It was like a cancer for me. Mm, I got it you. was just bringing me down as a human, as a person, you know. And yeah. I felt like, like I I needed to get away from it, right? You know. And it, it's funny how God has our plans for you, right? And you can say all you want all the time, but again, it goes back to me being Jonah, running from Nineveh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, but ultimately, God has put me where I need to be. And um, I retired from up there. I came. I moved back home after a couple, couple different attempts working for private companies, working for someone else. Yeah. And you can relate to this. Yeah. And I found that my place is is working for myself. You know, mm-hmm. I still contract work. Yeah. I still do executive protection. I just got back from Maui doing an executive protection gig for a week. And you know, those little breaks and those little opportunities to go and work. Yeah can keep me kind of in the game, if you will, I got you. and allow me to kill, still practice the craft that I teach. Uh-huh. 
and that's self-protection, you know, personal protection, protection of others. And, and I'm, I still do that. And I teach and travel and teach for right. different companies. And, but ultimately my goal is to continue to do what I'm doing now. My, my wife and I bought 46 acres and we have a range on it Yeah. and I teach there. Like it's a farm. We're going to farm and I'm, and I'm leasing out that space for me to teach on that space, but it's not a private or it's not a public place. Right. I it's got a you. private place. I so my goal is to continue to teach good patriotic Americans and good people just in general yeah. to be harder to kill. Yeah. Do you yeah. think it's uh do you think it's okay for uh, for Christians who want to protect themselves, either uh, you know here in the state, great state of South Carolina with a uh, like a concealed carry, or uh, you know being able to protect their house? You think it's a think it's a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like where in the Bible does it says you can't protect yourself? Oh yeah, well I think I mean, people have a misconception and misinterpretation of turn the other cheek. Right, right, right. It's right. giving people the opportunity to walk away, and that's what we 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 should do. Yeah, but not in the sense that I turn my back and I'm that I'm ambushed and murdered and killed. Right, and I right. can't continue on to protect my family and be a good father or be a good husband and be a, a brother or or a, or a son. Yeah, like that that you know by doing that you basically give up. Right. I think one of the unnecessary evils you know me leading uh, being the director of security here at Ecclesia is that uh, I'm constantly having to sell the job. Yeah, and which makes sense. You're I get the sheepdog, right? I get in a it. sense. Yeah, I mean, you got. I mean, think about it though. It's an unfortunate thing in, right. in 2022 that people want to attack churches and uh, yeah. people want to run up in churches and they want to shoot at people and they want to shoot people in the parking lot and all this other kind of stuff. And uh, uh, you know, it's it's you know, being able to protect yourself, being able to protect your family, yeah. being able to protect others. Right. I mean, the Bible clearly states Jesus Himself said that it was no greater gift than this than a man to lay down his life for John his friend. John fifteen thirteen. No greater gift. Yep. And uh, you know, uh, I, I love dudes like you, man. I love knowing guys like you, guys who uh, have done a lot of training, got a lot of experience. Uh, guys like you who are humble, um, Christian believers and uh, teachers. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's something that the world needs, you know, well, now the humility that that's still a journey, yeah, right. Cause I'm still <laughs> human. Oh, hundred percent. And and I've had my moments where I've said things and done things to hurt other people. And I, yeah. and it's not where I want to be. It's not the man I want to be. I got you. My goal in life, right. Is to be a, a happy old man that my grandkids and my kids want to be around. Right. You know, and still be, it's like Jordan Peterson says, you know, a good man is not a weak man. A, a good man is a dangerous man, a dangerous man who's capable of controlling that violence. A hundred percent. And there, and, and I want to continue that, that journey and to, to, to find that. And, and right what I'm finding now being home here, right. Is that, is that I can still follow and love Jesus and, uh-huh. and, and put my faith in, in, in follow that path. And I don't know where that's leading me. I don't know where God, I, 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 I keep, feeling a draw like toward yeah. a direction and, yeah. and that's to share God's love for others, yeah. you know, and for us. Yeah. But I can, and I still remember, and it says it right there in Psalms, right? Psalms 144, right? Yeah. One through three or four, right? It says, right. it says, God prepare my hands for war, my fingers for battle, mm-hmm. you know, tear, basically knock down my enemies before me, Yeah. you know? And so it says it right there and it reminds us that, that in the Bible, whether it's the, the old covenant or the new covenant, that that God still knows that that violence is necessary to protect the good from the evil. Yep. Right. He gives the evil an opportunity to change their ways and follow Him, and repent. Yeah. But ultimately, He's going to protect those that love Him. Yeah. Right. And sometimes, I mean, 
It's decisions. See, that's the thing. We have authority on this earth. We have the decision making. Right. You know, and, it, and it tells us in the Bible that that He gave us that authority, right? But also, what's working here too, because of a decision that that man made, is that that the evil itself, the the true definition, the the evil entity that it is, Satan is still very much thriving here on this oh, world. Most definitely. And he is he. He turns us from good decisions. Yeah, and so people have to remember that that we are in control of our decisions. We have that that ultimate accountability and, and ability to make good and bad right. decisions. Right. It's a and it's it's kind of like um, just that daily walk. I mean, people talk. You know, even Jesus said that if you deny yourself, take up a cross and walk me daily. Denying yourself, right, and that cross, whatever your cross may be. Think about this, and I've heard this this parable or this this example is that is it. A, a, a parishioner, a follower of a church, had been gone for a while. The pastor goes and visits him. There's a fire burning, as he's talking to the man and he's trying to explain to him that he needs to come back to church. That, that again, that walk is every day, yeah. right? And then, and then the man is constantly in denial of that and, and apathetic toward his his ploy, yeah. his pleas. And so, as the pastor goes to leave, he he takes the 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 fire, the tongs there, and he grabs that one one piece of burning hot coal. And he takes that coal and he sets it on the mantle, mm-hmm. the brick mantle there, so it's away from the fire, yeah. and it slowly starts to fade to black. Mm-hmm. Yet that fire is still burning because it's there together, mm-hmm. burning a fire of whole, you know, mm-hmm. working together and, and keeping the fire stoked, you know, with one another. And that yeah. that fire is what we have to continue to do. As iron sharpens iron, very true. One man sharpens another, right? Yeah. And so we we have to do that and belong to organizations right. and find people and seek people out that are going to that are going to keep us accountable. I agree, man. And continue to keep us sharp. Yeah. And, and there's where, like you, man, when, when I saw you the other day at the range and we reconnected, <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, that's awesome. And then I found out that, you know, it's a, that, that man, the things, things don't happen by happenstance. Nah, 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 like there's a reason the we're Lord's sitting in this room hand. together. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, brother. And, 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 you know, my fun, my buddy, Tom Chiz was a Christian. His father's a pastor. He's a retired cop, you know, just good, hard people, man. And yeah. he said he was going there. And I've been telling Misty, I was like, we got to go, we got to find a good church. Yeah. And we got to, we got to go somewhere. And so, you know, I'm committing now. I'll, I'll you know, I'll see you Sunday. Awesome. You I'd know? love to have that, you, bro. That I want to come see you. I want to, yeah. I want to come, you know, and, and learn about what Ecclesia is all about. And, and, uh, and people, people know, like, you've explained what Ecclesia really means and what it's yeah. about, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's so, when people tell me about, you know, church, we have this idea that church is this place that we go to once a week. And my entire relationship with God is supposed to be three songs, a 45-minute message, and some fried chicken. And that's yeah. my relationship with Christ, right? That's <laughs> right. how you build an eternal relationship a with Christ, right? A check. A right? Liverpool, yeah. And, and then, when we, you know, we have people, all walks of life come into Ecclesia. You know, we're in, we're in Horry County, so people come from all over the country to it's retire here and live here. So beautiful. But when they come in, and I'm like, right. yeah, that's not this place, but, you know, you're going to come to the house. We're going we're gonna to have Bible study at the house. You're going to be at the church, you know, uh, you know, this, that, and that time. We're going to be doing this for the group, this for the community, this for the community. We're going to see each other all the time. And that this, you and I, yeah. those guys, those guys, we're the church. That's right. It's not that building. That building, of, it's right. nice, right? It's a big building. Right. We can meet there once a week. And even in the Bible, they said that they met daily. Right. But it didn't say they met daily in the temple. Right. Right? So the church is there. It's great. It's, it's a tool. That's right. right? It's, it's not, a place to keep the rain off your head and the sun exactly. off your, your, your face while and you're And it's not. And people, think, people think that, that, that God can only exist within these four walls. 
right? Not true at all. It's not true at all. You know, God exists, uh, you know, and, and, and I would say that, you know, the security team that we have, and, and we call it the Paraclete uh, the ministry, the veterans That's ministry cool. here, is the one thing that we do have is that guys come together and we do things together. And we do things that I would call the non-traditional Christian things, like go to the gun range. Right bro. on, man. We we'll go to the gun range. We'll go and do a little bit of training. Hey, he's like, yeah, hey, you ever? You know, someone ever taught you how to clear a room? Come on out, bud. We'll fry right. some uh, some some hot dogs. We'll burn some uh, burn some uh, chicken bog. Uh, we'll eat on the range and hang out, and we'll nice. learn something. Um, that uh, that that in of itself is church. And maybe maybe shooting guns is not your thing. Maybe you're not a veteran. You know? Maybe you're not a cop or a firefighter, but uh, you know, being able to have a, a network of people that will hold you accountable who will say, hey, bro, uh, what you're doing is not good. That's not a good idea. A, a, a true system to lean on. Too many people try to do this Christian thing alone. Yeah. Right. Too many times do we try to uh, go at it alone and they say, well, you know, I'm not go- I'm not I'm not going to be part of any kind of group. I'm just going to go home. And I, I think I got it myself. Right. Um, and the unfortunate thing is you can't. You've, you've got to have a network to lean on. You've got to have somewhere where you can come back and get uh, poured into. That's right. You know, and then if you pour into other people, because we're taught to disciple, that's that's the the last command that Jesus gave us, the Great Commission, if you will, before He left, that we're supposed to disciple people, and that our job is to take other people, take them under our reins, and say, "Well, this is what God's done for right. me." And that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast: right. is that there's a lot of guys who've been in the world. Right, we've got a lot of warriors, a lot of hard charges, a lot of alpha males, yep. and what do we do more than anyone else is that we'll suck it up. Yep. We were told sucking it up and compartmentalizing something is the only way to deal with something. Right, and I want you guys to know, man, you're not alone. You're not by yourself. There's dudes who have done the same thing you and I have done. They travel the world. They've, 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 you know, they fired, fire, they shot at people out of hate, and you know, uh, you know, as a job and. There's guys who've beat other people's heads in as a job, and and they think that they can only uh, that they're alone, and that they have to do this kind of stuff uh, by themselves. And you know, uh, bringing in guys like you lets people know that you know, hey man, well, so you're not by yourself. Exactly. And and here's another. I just thought about this. So last summer, I have I'm friends with David Harris Jr. He became a great friend. I met him through an event that I was running a range up in upstate. Okay. And he's a Christian man. I love He's on fire for God. And and through him, I met Rob McCoy. Okay. And that's the first time through Calvary Baptist or Calvary Chapel. Yeah. Okay. And you know the history of Calvary Chapel. Yeah. Um, dude, amazing dude. This guy is awesome. That's where I learned uh, through this this event, the da- National Day of Prayer through Old, Old the Line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, through Sean Faust. I was up in D.C. with him this past summer. And... Um, at that event, I heard Rob McCoy talk about ecclesia and what it really means. Yeah, and it's town square. And yeah. again, it's not the church; it's it's the community. Yeah, it's coming together and and building one another up and loving one another. And I think, like you said, going back to that man, is that understanding that that we as a community, and I say we, I mean as Christians. Yeah. It in in this misnomer that we're supposed to be this milk toast, turn the other cheek. You know, pacifist is not right. true. Not true. And and here's a here's a proof of that, and that is 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 when um, Jonah Clark, okay, uh, the first shots fired, right? Um, the shots heard around the world at Concord, right? right. And where where uh, Samuel Adams and um, and uh, and and I'm trying to think, I'm losing my mind here, but Samuel Adams goes to Jonah Clark, right? Jonas Clark and in Massachusetts or Lexington, Massachusetts, and he where he was born, and then and of course the shots heard around the world, 
was uh, John Hancock and Samuel Adams in is April 18th, 1775, you know, where Paul Revere made that famous midnight ride, right, to yeah, learn yeah. about the British coming. And then when he met with Jonah, Pastor Clark, or he asked him if the people of Lexington would fight, which to which Jonas replied, I have trained them for this very hour. Wow. And they fought the next day. And he lost, there was a lot of men that died the next day. There were 70 men from that church fought 700 British soldiers. Nice. And they stood their ground. 30, I think 30 men died that day, right? But they, they, were, they had been training for that. Yeah. Think about it. Yeah. They, which meant everything in that very statement says that it's doing exactly what you're doing now. Right. With Ecclesia and yeah. what a lot of men are doing across the country where where they are where they're creating a hedge of strong men willing to do violence to protect the innocent. Yeah. And there is is a community there. It is a it is an opportunity for men of like mindedness or just those that want to grow and get yeah. better and stronger. Yeah. And they want to protect their family. Yeah. Because that's what we're supposed to do, right? Yeah. We as men, that's the way God created us. My biggest fear is that there's guys who uh who don't think that like-minded guys like you and I could be Christians and that they themselves don't think, hey, I could be a follower of Christ and have the colorful background I have yeah. or have the experiences that I have right. and even still be in right. the community. They think, well, I right. can't be a follower of Christ. That's taboo, yeah. I just want you to know that's right. a lie. It is a lie. That's a lie from the devil, brother. That's right. Because we're here right now. That's right. And uh, I'm, I'm going to have guys come in and out. And we're going to talk about the same thing, man. And we're going to let you dude, know, dude. I hey, love this. I there love is a this. fellowship, and there is a group of believers, and and we're all we're the same type of dudes, That's right. man. And if we curse from time to time, if we if we Sometimes. say something about somebody, we're still human beings, still man. Still human, but so don't that doesn't make you like okay, I'm I'm not a Christian anymore, right? Jesus still loves us, right? He loves the good and the bad alike. Amen, brother. Hey, I like that, dude. Well, Scott, man, I think it's about time to wrap it up. Amen. Uh, right we've been running our jibs for a little while. It's a uh, good one too. Technical man. Uh, difficulties and everything, but it's been really good. And we must be again, doing something good because the devil was attacking. That's you it. That's it. Right? <laughs> well, uh, I want to say thank you to you, man. Uh, I really appreciate you coming out and having a conversation with me. Um, uh, you're somebody I do look up to, man. And I, I love your experiences. I love hearing your stories. You always got a good story to tell, and. Uh, uh, hopefully, I see you out on a gun range again, man. We will. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the Lord before we leave, man. We're gonna pray before we leave. God, thank you so much for the many blessings you've given us, Lord, and, and your love, and uh, uh, most importantly, Lord, for me, God, is your grace, Lord. Uh, even though we don't deserve it, Heavenly Father, you give it to us freely, Lord. I, I ask you that uh, someone who's listening, God, that that hears my voice and and Scott's voice, Lord, that they learn something from this, they they hear something from this, and. Lord, that we reflect your love, God, uh, when they when they listen to this and they 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 decide that they want to, um, you know, uh, have a closer walk with you, Jesus, and have a relationship uh, of love. And even though they think they're a dirtbag, God, that they they're drawn to you, Lord. We ask you all this in your holy name, Amen. Amen.